Music gives soul to the universe, wings to the mind, flight to the imagination, and life to everything. Are you a rocker? Into punk? Country? Jazz? Hip-hop? Rap? Or perhaps show tunes? Or classical composers? Personally, I'm reggae in the morning, rock at lunch, and jazz for dinner. When it comes to music, there is something for everyone. After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches, and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. I like the fact that everyone's already laughing and giggling and, um, you know, I have no idea actually what time it is. You just asked what time it is, Tom. It is shaken and stirred time somewhere in the world. Five o'clock somewhere, right? Right. Well, for me, I flew in. I got in at midnight last night for me, but jet lag. Who knows? I have no idea. I'm Nigel Barker. My co-host is Tom Astor. This is Shaken and Stirred, where we talk about anything and everything and quite frankly, there is no agenda. It's just what comes to mind, which is what makes it so much fun. And it's really where this whole idea of Shaken Instead came from. And our guest today is someone who I've interviewed once before. I had the pleasure of meeting him and he, has, he talked about his wife the moment I met him, which I found quite interesting because there's a lot of guys that don't do that. Um, but you led with that. I am talking about Rehan Chowdhury, the founder of A Beautiful Perspective and the Life is Beautiful Festivals. Welcome. Thank you. I, I do try to have her be the first and the last thing that I talk about in any conversation. Well, I love the fact that you actually brought her with you, too. You know, she, I know she's a busy woman in her own right. I mean, she's quite pregnant right now. Uh, yeah, extremely pregnant. How We're, far along are you? We are five weeks away from the, um, the hospital doctors handed me a baby and let me walk out the door with it. It doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> just to let you know, they don't just hand you a baby and you walk out the door with it. But I love the fact that that's how you think it happens. You see, that's what, you know, I felt that's what happens too in these things. But but it, it is a bit like that. But I, it, it, the whole process for me was a huge eye opener. And I, I can see the nerves in you already. I know it's a month away. Um, Tom, you've got three kids. I'm godfather to his daughter. He's godfather to my son. Um, and you were the first out of, I think, all of our friends to have a child. I was also the first person, to, apart from your wife, to see your What son. are you saying? Oh, okay. Yes. In, indeed, to see my <laughs> son. He was no, there. No, no, no. He dragged me to the Mount Sinai Hospital. He dragged me up to see his, 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 his Chrissy, who'd just given birth about three and a half minutes before, and said, this is your godson. No, it was even, I mean, it was even before, this is your godson. It was, and it was preordained. So... It just happened that I was uh, I was there, and so it was the sort of it was one of the most. I remember thinking this is one of the most unfair things you can probably do to a woman. I don't know if there's any. You're not asking for advice, but if there is advice, don't do that. Don't do that. But I really? think the funny okay. thing is, really? is that I mean, how, I'm very proud to be the godfather of, of his son, but you know, as I am of your your daughter. But it is interesting how guys we don't really know. And, and we are, the, you know, we have the, the steepest learning curve of all. And we do all the things sort of slightly wrong or not quite sure what we're doing. But I think as long as you do it with love and, and you yeah. do it with the right meaning, you kind of get away with it. Your wives give you, you know, uh, the get out of jail free card. But before we get into it, I'd like to talk about the drink because obviously at Shaken and Stir, we always have a drink. Tom, what are we drinking? Dark and Stormy. Uh, what, what, tell me. Um, what, what from it? Bermuda. The reason for, for this one today is that Manhattan is is uh, New York is now in the in the last tail end of Hurricane Michael, which emanated through the Caribbean. 
Indeed. Dark and stormy is dark, dark, the rum and ginger beer with a little dash of bitters. So the rum is the dark bit of the drink. The ginger beer is the stormy, cloudy bit. And the bitters just gives it a little something. See, I was thinking that you called it, you got a, you know, you ordered a dark and stormy because you're looking at Rehan and you thought, you know, he looks dark and stormy to me. It's a, it's a perfect description. Yeah. Oh, what have you? Oh, yeah. All right. And Harrick and Michael. And, and actually, and, Nigel. Uh, we and me as well. And I'm fair, fair both Nigel. dark and stormy, is how yeah. I like to be described. Yeah. Several global stories. Like a hurricane. Okay, all right. Put you both on the spot. If you guys are dark and stormy, I am. What cocktail? So what were we talking about again? <laughs> is there a ginger, <laughs> is there a gin, ginger and light? <laughs> a light and ginger. Oh, fiery something. Fiery, yeah. Sorry, fiery. That's, that's the word, fiery. Sweaty anyway, sweaty here we go. <laughs> Cheers, by the way. Cheers. Welcome. Thank you. Very delicious, this drink. Doesn't taste dark and stormy to me whatsoever. That's the look. But it's the look. Hey, uh, that's, that's, all it, that's all it takes, right, these days. So let's talk about music. That's, that is your world, Rehan. What got you into the music business in the first place? Um, well, I mean, it started very, very young for me. Um, I always struggled in school and came from a, a family uh, where both my parents were physicians. My sister was destined to become a physician. And I, I didn't have that singular focus of what... I was going to do as a career. First of all, can I just stop you in the middle of that? Yeah. You're of Indian descent. Pakistan. Pakistani descent. Yeah. I'm of Sri Lankan descent. What is it about our, uh, people from Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, that we have physicians and doctors? I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's, it, the stereotype is sometimes ridiculous, but it's not that we're overly smart, but it is a stereotype. And when you said that, the first thing I thought was like, oh, my goodness, because I, I was meant to be a doctor yeah, myself, yeah, yeah. and I was pushed into being a doctor. We've got to do medicine, got to do medicine, and I didn't. But when I heard that, that's the first thing that popped in my mind. Uh, it's the same story. So Pakistani physicians, they go to medical school in Pakistan, come out here for the residency, typically go to Chicago, and then move to the Midwest somewhere. For us, it was Iowa, buy a Rolex and settle. And that's their, <laughs> that's, that's life. That's the routine. Um, so for us, it was very similar. We took an additional step to move to the D.C. area. But um, for for young people, if you if you have the luxury of, of – of, or the opportunity to have a, a focus of what you want to be when you grow up. Um, schooling, education, that whole process clicks. But for me, without knowing what the end game was, I struggled quite a bit. But the one thing I always anchored back to was music. Um, if there was ever anything that I, I could envision for myself, it was being on stage one day and being the lead singer of a rock band. That was something that I always strove for which band are we talking um, about <laughs> i uh well i ended up i ended up playing in, in a couple bands when i was younger but, but did I, you have a band that you would have liked to have been in oh yeah so so my my two um favorite bands of all time are the killers and uh the cure i love the cure uh, me yeah. too so you was it the black eye makeup oh yeah no I, my my um high school years involved fishnet stockings long boots um uh <laughs> I make up. I'm just imagining deal. the Pakistani parents right now. Oh, going, yeah. Oh, Rehan, you're going to become a doctor. Uh, <laughs> Rehan, you're so, you look so cheerful today. I was. Uh, Jesus, I was, that goth thing. Is I was like, channeling Robert Smith in a misery. We style angry misery. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of moping. Um, I wanted to be the bassist in Free. There you go. Because he was 15 years old when the band Free was out there, and he was the bassist in that band. And I thought perhaps at 15 I could be a bassist. You could have been. I, I actually did the, what, what the music. Went wrong? I did the music exam at school, and uh, did very well. I got number four in the whole year of 100 kids. So I was able to pick an instrument that they were going to let me play for free or learn for free. And when I went to meet my uh, music teacher, discovered that my music teacher was in fact 
a, uh, wasn't a bass guitar, but it was a double bass. And I thought, oh, I don't want to play double bass. I want to play the bass guitar. I want to be the, in free. I want to be in the band. And this old man said, I've come out of re- retirement. I haven't taught this instrument in several years. I'm so excited that someone wants to learn. And I looked at him and I felt so sorry for him that I studied the double bass for three years until he no longer would <laughs> want to change. Good. You know what? I, I, can, I, can, I can do something with the double bass, but it was, it, it was so kind of, I don't know. I, I felt so sorry for him, but that, that changed my life. Otherwise, of course, I would be a rock and roll star right now. But did yeah, you, absolutely. It was you, a double did, bass. Did you play? Were you a musician? Yeah, I, say, I, I played the guitar and I, 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 for a long time. I played the piano for a little bit, but um, music as a performer and as a songwriter never clicked for me. I think you know very early whether you have that gift or not. And, and for me, that wasn't the case. So I spent a number of years trying to chase um, some sort of formal career outside of music. I, I figured if I wasn't going to be a live performer, I might as well try to figure out something. And stumbled along the way until finally um, it came full circle in my late 20s, early 30s, where I found that I could apply the business knowledge that I had accumulated over the years of my creativity, my love for music. What businesses were you, were you doing there? So I, I, I started out after college. I, I was an IT consultant for the Department of Homeland Security. I was developing emergency response communication systems after 9-11. Um, didn't like wearing a suit and tie all day, clearly. Um, I'm in a t-shirt and jeans right now. But uh, And what does that say about you as a person? Does it? Do you think that defines you, the way you look? Um, I, I mean, ki- kind of. I, I think um, for me, the suit and tie coupled with the rigidity of, of the, the government environment created this structure that I felt like I had to operate a very specific way. I had to speak a very specific way. I had to become a very specific person. And it didn't allow me to explore who I was. Um, so I ended up leaving there, went to grad school, and then started what ended up being almost a 10-year career working for the casino business. So I was in hospitality, um, doing casino marketing and business development in Atlantic City and then in Las Vegas. So we went from fishnet stockings to homeland security. To <laughs> I love this story, I don't think we should. I don't think we should spend too much time talking about the the Vegas years. <laughs> Not too much time, Doctor. I tell you something though. Just I'm going to interject. You can take this out later on. But after post 9/11, Homeland Security. This ties on Pakistan. This all ties in. I was. Um, do you remember that moment when they went in and got Bin Laden? Yeah. And they went into the compound of Pakistan. And Musharraf, who was that kind of militant, uh, militant military. Uh, he was in charge of Pakistan at, the, at, at that time. He was president of Pakistan. He was the kind of military. Um, he'd taken over in a coup. Anyway, I was staying uh, for, the, for one reason or another. My cousin was married at, at that point to the then prime minister. And we were staying in, the country, in a place called Chequers in the Chiltern Hills. And it was a week after uh, bin Laden had uh, been extracted, let's say. And it was on the Sunday, we were staying for the weekend, and on a Sunday we all went walk to the pub. And there was a very, very important call that Cameron was the was married to my cousin. And he, at the time, he, he he kept emphasizing the fact he had to make a telephone call on this on this trip to the pub. And he had to talk to Musharraf because they hadn't, since the Americans went in and took Bin Laden out of that compound, no one had done... Um, the, the Pakistanis and the, uh, the English governments hadn't talked to each other. Anyway, so we're going up this hill. Camera's got a baby. This ties in quite nicely as well, on a little papoose. This mewling baby. It's sort of rain starting to come down. We're in the Chiltern Hills. It's a very English scene with kind of 
Greenland, you know, you can see where the pub is from, from the top of the hill and all the rest of it. Anyway, Dave had his very special phone, you know, he's terribly special. I mean, Dave Cameron. Yeah, Cameron, sorry, our Prime Minister at the time. We're all he's going on first, first name terms with him. Just why Dave, all of a sudden. Uh, why wouldn't he be? Well, he's my cousin, married to my cousin. You're allowed to. That's the thing about name dropping, isn't it? You name dropping, it's only name dropping if you don't actually, you know, talk to Dave. Like, I've already said I'm just Cameron. making sure everyone knows what you're talking about. Jesus. Carry on. <laughs> you make my life so God difficult. God, he makes it difficult. Anyway, sorry, I've completely interrupted this. But we're going to the pub. Everyone walks on ahead, and he, he makes a big point of stopping under a tree to make this call to Musharraf, you know? And I kind of lurk around. I'm thinking I want to hear uh, 21st century diplomacy you know, in action. He gets a special phone. He's got the baby on the front there. It's starting to make this kind of mewling noises. Gets through to the sheriff and he's trying to shoo me away. And I'm going, nah, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm riding close. I don't want to, I want to hear exactly what he's got to say to the sheriff after this incident with Bin, bin Laden. Anyway, ah, Pervez. I think that was his Christian name. Pervez, good to talk to you. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, finally, sorry. Listen, just, I'm so sorry about what happened last week. You know, with the Americans and Bin Laden, we had no idea what was going on. We had no idea they were going to do that. Normally, we share our intel. We're kind of best friends, you know. But on this occasion, swear to God, we had no idea what was happening. Um, and Musharraf was obviously sort of started buying it or bought into what he wanted to, you know, listen to. So the reason Cameron was doing it is because they were about to shut the supply routes into Afghanistan. Yeah. So he had to butter up. And once you shut the supply routes, then all our British troops in Afghanistan, it's questionable whether they should be there in the first place or not. Uh, anyway, uh, would actually get fed and all the rest of it. So, greasing Musharraf on the telephone with this mewling baby and me, and I'm I'm sitting there going, making sick. Fa- I'm sticking my <laughs> finger in my mouth, going, ah, you just, ah, going, doing a kind of cutting way, you know, just get off the phone, you sick, sycophantic. It's a horrible, horrible <laughs> thing to be doing, crawling up this military dictator's ass, you know, because apologising for the Americans' behaviour because they hadn't. Um, Anyway, I can't think how I got onto that. Well, you know, one thing leads to another here. And, and anyway, I, sorry. I love, I love how we've been sorry. on that red herring. I've managed to do... Well, it's not called shaking and stirring for nothing. What are you talking about? Bin Laden? You know. Every conversation we have here just gets... We're not quite sure where it's going to head. But I want to head back to... Sorry, anyway. You, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, not at before all. Before you were so rudely cut off <laughs> with this brilliant story about military dictators and Dave. Yeah, uh, there you go. Um, wait, wait, wait. Somewhere between I make up and casinos, and, and you getting to Vegas, Musharraf. I think Vegas also came came into play. Yeah, Las Vegas came into the play, which is the furthest thing from the government system. I mean, I, I homeland security. Sorry, that was yeah, what did yeah. it for me. Yeah. No, I think I think what happens is um, life is just this ongoing uh, opportunity to explore who you are and, and take the opportunity to to know when you have to redefine yourself and reimagine yourself. Because um, we're we're only a product of our experiences. So the more experiences that you have, and the more unique they are, and the more rich they are, um, the more that's going to hone what your future looks like. So for me, the first thirty years of my life were just trying to figure out who I was and where my place was in the world. And I think what I what I found out over that time was the analytical rigor that's required to operate in a post nine eleven government um, environment as a Pakistani American, I'm trying to secure or or play my role in securing the country after the, the most horrific attack, um, that this nation had ever seen made me realize that, that I, I can carry a level of focus in chaos. That was really interesting, but I knew I couldn't dedicate myself to a process. Um, what the casino environment taught me was, 
I have a love for creating um, beautiful moments for people. So moments where um, people are celebrating in ways that they never knew they could, um, in communities that they never knew that they could be comfortable in, and in a lot of ways seeing the world for the very first time. Something that we say in our company quite often is um, we're, we're successful in what we've done if, if we can make adults see the world as if uh, they were a child seeing Christmas morning for the first time again. Um, and how important was the music aspect to that? I mean, obviously, look, you're talking about a festival, you're talking about bringing people together, creating a beautiful moment. But, you know, the, the, the underlying element here is you're creating a music festival. And certainly for me as a photographer, when I have people on set, the music sets the tone of the entire shoot. If I'm put, the, I personally love the cure. So if I'm doing something and I'm working and editing away, I'll often put the cure on because it takes me back to a certain moment of my childhood that makes me feel good. And you know, there there are so many different genres of music, right? There's there's sort of a music for everyone, so to speak. But you know, how, how much of what you do do you think that is, does music play the big part of bringing people together specifically? Yeah, I mean, I mean, music throughout history is. Um, one of the most consistent unifying cultural elements that exists. It, it allows us to play this role between escapism entertainment and um, um, living a, uh, being a part of like a, a living um, time, rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. Well, a living time capsule almost. Because if you, if you look at the way music is written, it's inspired by what's happening at the moment. It's inspired by the lives that people are living. So whether you're um, uh, listening to the Beatles' Get Back or you're listening to Childish Gambino's This Is America, um, that is is representative of a moment in time. And as we carry that with us, it becomes the soundtrack for every conversation that we have and every social interaction that we have. So music is very much a unifying moment. So it's not surprising that these large-scale live events that we, we now call mainstream music festivals are are rooted in live music entertainment. I think what we found is to round out the experience, you can't just focus on bands on stage. If you think about the best dinner party you've ever had, whether it's for ten people or ten thousand people, absolutely, it involves art on the wall. It it tri- but you said, is can you say it was a sort of tribal? Yeah, I mean, it's tribal. It's absolutely. basically tribal. Absolutely, and 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 but with that. Tribes um, connect uh, on a multidimensional level. It's not just the sounds that they're listening to. It's the conversations that they're partaking in. It's the food and beverage that they're consuming. It's the art on the walls. It's representative of their history. So you have to include all of those elements. So I, I think what's interesting is not just how music has evolved over the years, but how we connect with music. And right now, our connection to music are through large-scale tribal celebrations known as music festivals, food festivals, art festivals. Can, so I, that's can, where we can, can I ask a question? Well, Why? Just something that, that, that scares me. And I'm a, a, as a music, I'm a musician. I mean, I play, and the greatest satisfaction I can get on my own is, 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 is by playing on my own, whether it's my guitar or banjo or piano or whatever. But... What do you think the difference between, you know, all the art forms you have painting, you could have, you know, if you look at the arts, you look at the dance, you look at painting, you look at music. I mean, music, would you agree that music really is one of the only art forms that can reduce an individual to tears? Whereas painting, for instance, even you can stand and look at one of Monet's, you know, you can stand in that museum in Paris and look at those big money. Pick paintings and 
I think I've cried doing that, but that's mostly because my back hurt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I, I think, but it's an art. It's one of the only art forms. It's one of the very few, a few inanimate. I mean, not inanimate, but it's one of the very few things that are kind of actually reduce an individuals to tears. Yeah, I mean, so. I mean, it's definitely, yeah. it's definitely the one that reduces individuals to tears the most consistently. Um, I think, I think one of the things we're exploring quite a bit in the, the entertainment programs we create are, are the different variations of visual art that we we include, and I think. What we're seeing now, especially in a time of, of political uh, unrest, is um, minority groups using street art and, and more modern art to um, uh, express the oppression that exists within minority groups today as if um, they were they were as if they still existed or as if they were existing the same way that they did a hundred years ago and such right. as well so um um God, I'm trying to think of a good artist. This beautiful artist that we were looking at based out of Chicago. I'm, I'm forgetting her name, but she um, uh, focuses on on presenting um, women of color nude, but their um, their 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 presentations that look like the artist painted them a hundred years ago. But what they show is um, they show this uh, raw um, female power. And a minority power that is very much relevant today, but something that reminds us that very little has changed for minority groups over the last hundred years. We're still, in a lot of cases, living in the same um, confined situations of, that were created for us. Um, sometimes getting worse. Yeah, yeah, and, and considerably so. So I, I do think that there are art forms that when they're so tied to the pain that people are, are feeling at the moment, um, they can reduce you. To your rawest emotions, Tear specifically one. tears, but music has always been the consistent producer, producer of, of emotion. emotion. Like emotion. And um, what's your involvement at the moment? What are you? What are you focusing on? Yeah. Um, um, what, right now, what are you focusing on? Yeah. So my um my company is uh, called A Beautiful Perspective, and what we're trying to do is combine live entertainment, um, whether it's painting or music or food, wine, etc. Um, with uh, digital news content, so basically all the issues that we're dealing with on a daily basis for social good. Um, there's an entire generation of young people who are more aligned and more engaged with what's happening in the world and how to resolve um, a lot of these social issues that, that people around the world are facing and with a sense of urgency that hasn't been seen for a long time. For the last decade leading up to this moment, entertainment was largely... Um, based on escapism. We used it as a way to take a break from reality. But For now sure. but now that, that that separation doesn't exist anymore. So what we're trying to do is produce large scale events that um, celebrate both the uh, live entertainment that is most uh, emerging and, and about to become mainstream popularity today with the issues that matter the most. So and how do you find the artists react to that? I mean, are the artists as in excited about that concept or are they just creating music for whatever that's just it's more personal to them or do they have a sense of urgency yeah i mean they, they absolutely do i mean if you think about every major moment in music history where where emerging music like new voices changed the world they, they were not um uncoincidentally i guess tied to to social unrest so the first time we heard Bob Dylan's lyrics and Janis Joplin's voice was in the late 60s, early 70s, around the anti-Vietnam War movement. The first time we heard Tribe Called Quest and Run DMC um, 
was uh, in NWA was in the late 80s, early 90s around racial tension in urban environments. We heard Kurt Cobain screaming the lyrics to Nirvana Nevermind um, at a time when the younger generation had just had enough with the political system and were as anti-establishment as you could possibly get. These artists... And fashion copied. Yeah. We had grunge and androgyny and heroin chic and it was the end of the 80s and the supermodel and all of that. It was the excess and... Yeah, no, it's very interesting how certain things mirror. Yeah, so it's just we're we're in this moment where um, artists have so much to say via mm. their art, but the sense of urgency is we have to fix these issues now become before it's too late. So what they're looking for are opportunities not just to perform their music, but also to speak about these issues. Mm. So we've provided platforms like that. Is it possible for you? I mean, obviously, you know, you're a guy who's about to have a a baby wife's next door you know um however philanthropic one feels you know you you have to kind of make a living somehow out of doing these things and you've you've done your vegas uh, having read up on your notes on vegas you got sort of disenfranchised with that and you moved on it wasn't who you were and you're still you know you're in touch with with, with kind of you know your 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 life goals and stuff is it possible is it or is it difficult? Should I say? I don't know how to how to how to how to phrase the question. But is it how complicated is it for you now with 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 what you've learned and what you want to do in your vision, right? Which has obviously evolved hugely, and it's now become quite a sort of you know a, a political. Is is it possible for you to make a living out of what you're trying to do? I, I sure hope so. Um, I believe that there is, but I'm very fortunate that I've got a. Um, uh, a partner in my wife who is uh, incredibly good at her job. That helps. That's <laughs> always nice. By the way, I have one too. God, I don't. I, I want one. Where do I? Because she got a sister. Where is she? I can't see. Her. She, <laughs> she got a sister. Identical she does. Have, she, she does have two sisters, and they they are wonderful. Um, one of them's married, the other one's single. Um, Damn. Okay. Well, the, why didn't you bring the single? One I, I can I can tell you with confidence. I got the best sister of. of of, of, of the three, I got the best one. Totally believe but, um, you. Where's the other one? That's going to go down really well next time you see them all together. <laughs> no, right? I mean, I mean, I mean. So we are having we are having a child um, very soon, and and I think for me growing up, I was first generation American. My my parents came to Pakistan um, unmarried in their early 30s, and then met here through family. But um, they had to deal with raising children away from a home, the only home that they knew, and had to learn how to survive first and then ensure that we were safe and growing up in a way that retained our culture, but we're also adopting a culture that they didn't fully understand. And it's not a, an, it's, it's not a unique thing that we went through. It's first generation issues. So I think now we, we, we our hope is that um, we have, uh, our son's going to have two parents who are very much in tune with what, this world looks like and the opportunities that we want to provide our, our child um, to be able to become the best version of themselves, knowing also, that they haven't discovered. He hasn't no, discovered sure. But also there. what you're doing is also setting an example for actually, it's fairly, I mean, I wouldn't say selfless what you're doing, you know, the, the, the but it is pretty selfless though. It is selfless, but again, you know, I mean, how many music festivals are there? I mean, you, if you think yeah. about it, you're in the business of music festivals. Yeah. Yes, for sure. You mentioned sort of eras of Woodstock and what have you, where there were sort of one or two music festivals and they were unusual. Now, there seems to be a music festival every weekend. 
if not more than one, and I just went to Global Citizens, which mm -hmm. was again another one about you know cause related and what have you. Um, well, so having done a selfless, so to, 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 you do <laughs> current approach, the selfless approach with your parents' work ethic approach yeah. to survive, right? With your with your impending um, with your impending you know growing family. It's a complicated one to get, isn't it? Because it's like it's the yeah. work ethic or the, or the or the ethic ethic, you know, the yeah. kind of. The... It's definitely. Um, I think what's what's come up in this generation that that didn't exist before is this notion of doing well by doing good. There was always a separation between the work you do for a career and the impact you do uh, in your private life, and those had to be separate. But now, with companies like Tom Shoes and Warby Parker and Global Citizen Festival, they, they've set um, a new business model where. One, you can do both, but two, if there's anything we learned from Nike's campaign with Colin Kaepernick recently, it's um, there is a massive financial opportunity if you can nail um, those topics with uh, a level of authenticity and have tr the trust and be a trusted voice for your audience. So you can um, do good and make money. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, see, um, I saw you reposted that picture on your own yeah. social media. I mean, what did that campaign mean to you specifically? It's it's interesting. So if if you um if you look at well, what's interesting to me is is the process that Colin went through to come up with that form of protest. So people think that he people who are against what he's doing think that he is he, he found the way to be the most disrespectful to the flag, to our military, to our country. And the funny thing is is which was that, not to stand. That what that that had yeah to to kneel to instead of standing during during the anthem, but 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 that wasn't never the case. So his first action was sitting during the anthem, and he actually had a conversation with somebody. It was it was somebody in the Marine Corps, I believe, who who told him that that was actually an offensive thing to do, and if he was going to um, enact his form of protest during the anthem, he needed to kneel and not sit because that was a more respectful way to do. You're still respecting the flag. You're still respecting the country, but you're trying to visually raise awareness for the issue. Um, so, so he did it in my opinion, the right way. Um, but sorry, to, to, as an outsider, yeah. the land of the free and the democracy, you know, the freedom of speech. Sure, you can fucking lie down during the freaking anthem if you want. You can burn. I mean, burning the flag is still, you know. But you can, but you, in theory, you can, but you're not, people aren't going to be okay with it, is the point. I mean, yes, you can, but the yeah. people will criticize you. And I guess what your point yeah, is, Tom, you, is you can't can criticize. But how can you be criticized for doing something that you feel from the, you know, that you feel passionately about? You know, you're not saying you hate, you, you, you know, you hate. Everything and every, you know. No, absolutely, and actually, I think it's that's the point. That's speech. why there are so many people who, who actually think what he's doing has, was actually extraordinary, regardless of whether you agreed with him or not. It was the fact that he took a position and took a stand, or took a knee, yeah. um, and um, you know, and, and decided to, to to put himself out there and get incredibly criticised along the way. And actually, it was interesting with obviously Nike picking him up and running an advertisement with him how it shook people to the core and a lot of people were sort of burning their Nike shoes and saying, I'm not going to wear them again. But there were also a bunch of people saying, well, actually, what, what, you what was what? your, what Thanks was the, having the guts. Well, cause I'm, I'm kind of in the uh, tail end of the, of this story. Cause I'm obviously from, from England. So I don't really understand the dynamics, but what was the upshot of the whole situation with Nike? Yeah. I mean, so, so basically, um, Nike had signed Colin when he was still uh, playing for the 49ers and um, he started kneeling. It created a wave of positive and negative press, um, both for the league and for the team, but resulted in him no longer playing for the league. And 
what Nike did was um, they stayed consistent in their message. So they're they're from their beginning. They've always been a company that makes uh, athletic product products for professional athletes. Their their core has always been professional athletes. They uh, it's not that they don't care about your average consumer, but ultimately in their scope of influence, if they can become everything to the athlete, everything else will follow. And their um, support of Colin was, in my mind, less of a of a show of um, are they right leaning or left leaning, but rather it it showed it was the greatest case study of a story they've been trying to tell since the inception of the company when Phil Knight created the first shoe that they stand for the athletes. Right. Um, right. And their support of him at a time where he is not making the money in the traditional way wow. showed what value can so be created. So it's principle over a principle over profit. Yeah, he, he made, I mean, $6 billion in market value increase since the launch of that campaign can't be ignored. Mm. And we've been saying it as a company that um, for, for brands to be successful moving forward, whether it's festival brands or companies selling shoes, you have to, um, become a trusted have a principal yeah and have a trusted voice for millennials and the generation generation behind them who will make their loyalty decisions based on so is it music festivals? that answers also but that also answers my question why can't, in this democratic you know this country where freedom of speech and the land of the free and all of that you can't you, you know you can't kneel down otherwise you get castigated for it what you are saying is in fact companies like so a company like nike you know to, who has to buy the principles Acts yeah. actually stood by the principles, not in order to make money and profit, but actually to stand by the principles. But the, the upshot is people are f still free to make their own decisions. So we are still... Yeah, I mean, I mean there's, there's, as humanity, there's no limit to how um, how offended we're going to get about <laughs> about things, regardless of what they are. If we choose we want to be offended, we'll, get a, we'll be offended about anything. And, and rightfully so in a lot of cases. But I think what we're seeing the trends are, and we're seeing this in the festival world, the last decade or 15 years of festival development has been creating large-scale experiences where anyone can enjoy the experience regardless of background. So it's basically an, an everything for everyone. It's like the Walmart or the Best Buy of music festivals. Where now... But at most, a lot of these festivals, the, the, the rhetoric is quite left-leaning, it seems, at least the ones I've attended. Yeah, I mean, the, the Global Citizen's a very different event. That's one of the new wave events. What we're seeing everything shift to is in that direction where... Festivals like media, like brand marketing are becoming more niche where you don't have to appeal to everybody, but you have to be everything to somebody. Um, so it's why festivals like Afropunk are growing so dramatically or Global Citizen Festival can attract 60,000 people to this park around around solving for human rights issues, yeah. around solving for poverty issues. And there when, was a lineup of politicians and every Tom, Dick and Harry who wanted to get up there and talk, is, they were up there to try and get their point across. Is it all, is it all driven? Can I ask another question? Because um, I'm, I'm so the most, I'm, I'm um, social media savvy person ever. Is it all driven by social media? Is it, it oh, sorry, wrong, wrong, wrong question. Is it, does this, the global citizen thing that you've just described, is that as a result of the advent of social media and, and a sort of the publicity? Is, the, is that where the, where it's coming from? That the, the kind of you know. Yeah, I mean, kind of. So we we are. So the the rising generations behind us are the most um, connected uh, generations in in history. Um, my wife and I were just watching an episode of West Wing. It's our, our favorite show, and and we remembered there was a scene where where, where somebody was walking through. 
the 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 White House and, and asked, "Does somebody have the periodic table of elements?" And his assistant said, "No." And that was the end of the conversation because there was there was no internet, there was no googling the information. Mm. Um, so it's amazing that that was only twenty years ago. Um, so this generation is more connected and more aware than has ever been. But what what is happening as a result is one, you've got the opportunity for people to come together around um, around celebrations like Global Citizen Festival because it's a greatest celebration of that connectivity. But on the other side, there's a, a growing level of fear that's coming out of people being worried that they're losing their history and their culture and their sense of self. And I think mm. that's where the negativity is coming from. It's it's not that people – I mean there are, there are people who are just racist who, who don't want to be around diversity. But I think a lot of people are just – they're just afraid. Um, they're afraid of what globalization means. So does globalization mean less of myself and less of my history? Um, and I think that's something that we're going to have to reconcile because with – the introduction of social media and the rampant use of social media and that connectivity, you're obviously are going to see pros and cons come out of it. The question is what happens next? Pros, cons, and tweets. Yeah. I mean, when, when, when we're being governed via Twitter, that, that is a, that is a problem. Twitter was meant to be a way to summarize what was on your mind at the moment and let it disappear. But now it's a, it's a record. I mean, this is a record for, for mm. history. So, but also the fear of the unknown is is the root cause of um, personal insecurity? Oh, absolutely, um, and that's and that's a case across the board, right? I, I think for me, the conversation my wife and I have, have on a nightly basis is, um, <clears throat> what kind of history are we leaving for our children mm-hmm. to be able to look through? No, because, for sure. That's one of the most terrifying things that I discuss with my wife as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're, they're, it's funny. My sister and I joke about this all the time. That when we talk about our parents, when we talk to our parents about their 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 upbringing, their gaps that nobody wants to talk about, mm. and they just gloss over them. And there's no research source that we can go to except trying to trying to get a couple drinks into one of our older great uncles or yeah, something yeah, and get the stories. But, yeah. but now, what we tweet, what we post, what we Instagram is is going to be something that our, our children while we're raising them and once we're gone um, are going to look back on and, and use as their hopefully guiding voice. So there, there's a level of responsibility. Um, a huge level just, of responsibility. Yes. No, for sure. I no. mean, you can just have a look at what happens to the markets when Elon Musk comments about something. It's a giant. Or whatever he might do on a podcast, no less. Um, be careful, Rihanna, what you do on a podcast. Because <laughs> he can well, come, back, come back to watch you. I was just going to say, yeah. are we getting more drinks in here? Yeah, we can get more drinks. <laughs> we can, you know, I, I, I don't have anything to roll, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, Rihanna and I are out of um, Dark and Stormy. We'll, we'll have so. to work that out. But it, I want to go back to the technological side of this, these things, because we were talking about, obviously, the social media. We're talking about sort of the way digital world is affecting everything that we do. But how has it affected music festivals? Yeah, I mean, it, it, so we. Um, what was interesting is I, I think the industry didn't really see initially the ways in which technology could enhance the experience for music festivals because, like, well, most most musicians in general were very anti sort of downloads and very you know, much so. felt very as much as if their music was going to be stolen. Well, again, and, yeah. again, the fear of the unknown. It's yeah. again the fear of the unknown, isn't it? Very much so, and it, it wasn't. It wasn't until they started realizing that the the reach that they could achieve um, was so much greater if they just eliminated the barriers of having to walk into a Tower Records and purchase a, a CD instead mm. of other ones. Um, but what's happened is um, there've been some some major 
uh, innovators in the space. So like Pasquale Rotella, um, at a time at a time leading up to this, where like Lollapalooza and outside uh, outside lands and Austin city limits and and Coachella were the the case study for festivals, bands on stage in a field. Pasquale Rotella took underground rave culture dance party culture and and said this is going to be the new festival model and you're not going to have a drum kit and you're not going to have any strings you're going to have DJs. a person uh behind a dj kit and we're going to build the greatest light and visual show in history and the movement that he created um spurred a ton of innovation in the industry where now people can participate in the performances they've got apps on their phones where they can manipulate the, the visuals that they're seeing set off fireworks when they want to. We've got LED wristbands that are tied to the sounds and the music and the the, the various moments. Um, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, uh, and we haven't even touched on the VRAR um, conversation. We're in our infancy and in how that's going to work. Which um, is terrifying. Yeah, it's te- it's terrifying for sure. Um, VRAR. Uh, virtual reality, reality, augmented reality. Okay. You put on the mask and you, yeah, yeah, you appear somewhere else. Yeah, so you're, yeah you're so well, a bit like a silent, dis- bit of sophisticated silent disco. Well, it Sounds can, like a properly sort of shit way to spend the evening. Right? But you can, I'm <laughs> sorry. To put like that. But, idea, but it can take look at you to you, the music festival. Yeah, well, let's right? put, well, well, in your own front room. In theory, yes. Yeah, no, yeah. But you don't get smelly and dirty and covered in mud and like get to... Like, it sounds fantastic like 18, to me. Yeah, but at 18, <laughs> there aren't like, a bunch of kind of like people you can go and snog in a drunken state. Like, you know, generally, it's not a music festival. I'm well, sorry. my wife doesn't it's really allow like, me to do that yeah, anymore. But it's so. a little bit like, you know, the guy with the, with the DJ booth and the underground rave scene... You don't need a drum kit anymore. Well, you, t- you might as well all sit in a car park and tune into the same friggin' radio station, just right. turn your radios up. Do you know what I mean? And I remember, by the way, from the 90s, sitting in the car park. Doing just at that. At one right. of those illegal raves. No, I remember dancing. I think I, I saw someone where I was dancing to a car alarm but at some point, but that was the early days of trance. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, uh. it's like augmented reality. Doesn't that just kill it? Yeah. I mean, Will it, that kill so, it? So it's, it, I, I think it's... I, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think it's going to do a little bit. Of, I think it's going to change it. So it's funny. In every um, generational innovation moment, we, we always look at the innovation and say, like, this is going to ruin everything, right? So it was, yeah. we listened to music live and in front of us. And then when the radio came out, yes, you could listen to so it's going to change. Music so what you're saying is, it, it will change it. Yeah, but remember, like, when the radio came out, mm. conversations were being had about, like, is this going to destroy the music experience? Because music And then TV arrived and it destroyed conversation because yeah, everyone watches and TV and having so, their dinner. And, so and by the way, podcasts are apparently destroying radio. So well, podcasts are just kind of a nice way to spend a bit of time in your car without having to tune into yeah. the news later, right? I mean, so so we we just did an event with um we, we did an event called Activist Mornings with MIA, and it's a morning um, concert and and speaker series where we talk about social issues, but we bring in talent to to do these incredible performances before people go to work. And one of the things that MIA was saying, um, uh, both live and in her documentary, was um, we need to pay more attention to all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds and give opportunities to everybody because you don't know where the next, she specifically said, you don't know where the next Michael Jackson is going to come from. So the five-year-old in a village in Sri Lanka or in a slum in Mumbai um, can, if they, they're given the right equipment, can become the next major innovator in I like the fact music. that they were, they were both Asian. Yeah, right. So, so, so the we idea- do that, by the way. We that's that's that part of the Asian. Yeah, he gave you the benefit of that with Sri Lanka. He didn't. He should have done Karachi and bigged himself. No, I know. <laughs> you know good, I mean? He was good that way. He no, was yeah, very, very under the I radar. I thought that was very modest, actually. So, so, but but I think I think, He's I think trying to play me. I think the, the idea is, if if virtual reality or augmented reality, keep it in the microphone. If if that can um, 
if that can eliminate more barriers and give a child who right now who has no opportunity to become part of the industry an opportunity to express themselves and ultimately make an impact in, in the music industry and in the, in the entertainment industry, then I think it's worth the sacrifices we're going to make in losing the short-term connectivity that we have. Well, are you actually losing us. anything? It's just progress, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it is, and I, I think that's the opportunity. It's I, I remember... When so, I, so, so you say, you know, everyone always says, oh, in the old days, you know, everyone used to respect their elders, and, you know, it's, it's like a sort of... <laughs> Nobody ever respected their elders. It's rose-tinted frigging glasses. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Everything always used to be better before. It's like, yeah, no, it didn't. So I've, I can kind of get up where you're, where you're coming from, you know, if it... No, it's true. It's it, it's funny. It's it's why first uh, generation uh, Americans have a tendency to grow up under stricter religious um, constructs because uh, families, the, their parents who are moving from another country are fearful as they're growing older that they're going to lose all tie to their culture. So they overcompensate by becoming more religious and more cultural, where when you actually go back to visit the countries – uh, we used to go back to Pakistan when we were, when we were younger, and it was a completely different place than our parents had, had basically projected was to us. So, like, I, I do think that as we get older, we definitely see things with rose-colored glasses. We manipulate the story quite a bit. That's, that's great for, for you to say that, because for me, coming back to New York, I'm a fourth-generation American. I emigrated doing uh, – no, fourth-generation, sorry, English. Yeah. Having, from having, from having emigrated from America wow. via Germany. So coming back to New York – for me, it's like coming back to the old country. <laughs> Where see you guys are just see it as a new country, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I see um, it as a country of promise. I mean, there is, as much as that sounds... We know, left in 1890. Almost we crazy but today, but it really is still. I mean, that, you know, the reality for someone like myself, you know, I, having grown up in, in England, someone from mixed-race family, um, Sri Lankan, Portuguese, English, I didn't have anyone, anyone to really identify with. The actual Asian community wouldn't have really nothing to do with us and i remember going to events with my mother and things and they would we would be on the sidelines they wouldn't talk to us because we were half enough and they, so we had that issue and then and then of course the english community they embraced us but i was always slightly an outsider so there was this this story that was always there so coming to the us was this kind of great moment for me where people stopped asking that question and i was sort of just generally accepted um and i met people for example like my wife who was Chinese, Irish, Russian. I love the and fact Nige thinks he's been generally accepted in New York. Sorry, can we, <laughs> so, is, can we see through the window? Can we have like a raise of hands so that everybody thinks Nige has been generally as an Englishman in New York? <laughs> I think oh, generally, like, because I guess you try oh to be a little God, modest. Like she's putting her hand up. Sorry, your wife just comes to the window and has put her hand up. <laughs> Thank right, you, whatever darling. she says goes. She's always right. She's always sorry, right. Carry on. Well, sorry, that's I why I married her. Sorry, I don't mean to. Well, no, but you I don't undermine you or anything. You wouldn't undermine me because that's just it, though. It's is there is a an element where I think that there's a lot of people, certainly in the U.S., who are a complete mixture, and their identity of who they are and where they've come from, it, it, it plays on them. You know, yeah. where you know, who am I? You know, does it matter? Am I a person of the world? Am I a global citizen? You know, or am I Pakistani or Sri Lankan or mm -hmm. English, or, or am I white? Am I Dark brown? Am I black? What am I? And does it matter? And and this is a sort of a, a narrative which is playing across a lot of people, and and, and they and they don't know what to do, and it's and it's causing panic, um, yeah. and, and people are getting very concerned. I had statistics just recently that in another fifty years, that almost something like ninety percent of people will be brown, 
you know, and they will, and so there's a lot of the white community hear things like that and then get even more terrified. Shut the fuck out and stop worrying so much. Jesus <laughs> Christ, life's too short, isn't it? I mean, let's get yeah. the info, let's get the, the augmented virtual reality out to the street kids in Pakistan who don't have all the luxuries and find that the my next, children find the next Michael have. Jackson. You know, yeah, no, no, find the next Michael right. Jackson. Come on, I mean, it's a we're in danger of about we're about to sort of enter a spoilt conversation. Rayhan, what, what are you about to call your son? Well, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not allowed to say. So we, um, <laughs> so Michael, we we, uh, we um, have decided that we aren't going to tell anyone until the baby's born because parents have an have an uncanny ability to to act as if the world's going to end if they have the opportunity to say so. Mm. Um, so we're we're hiding it from them. So uh, again, we're we're huge fans of uh, the West Wing. So I keep telling everybody that we're going to name them. We're going to name Michael. Oh, Michael. We're going to name him. Michael Sheen? No, no. So the president's name was um, uh, President Josiah Bartlett. So I keep saying that we're going to name him Josiah (laughs) Josiah Bartlett Moore Chowdhury. Christ, thank God. So there that's you go. A He's a great name. That's, that's strong. That's, that's that not where strong. we're going, but that's what I keep. That's that what I keep so strong. I can't see your wife. She, 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 getting up. She, she, she's not quite as capable of getting up and jumping around, putting her hand up. <laughs> well, I do Will think. You ask her if she's okay with that, and tell her to wait, pass the wave on. Yeah, Josiah, Josiah, yeah, <laughs> Josiah. Oh dear. No, that's no, not that's not happening. Not feeling it. No. Not feeling it. Not happening. No, no. <laughs> Listen, Rayhan, thank you very much for all your insight. I think that there's there's a lot going on in the music world and certainly in the music festival world, and it, it, it's it, it's exciting, and I think it needs to happen. And the message that you are giving people that, that they can learn to give back and learn to care at a music festival simultaneously, and not just go there for their own benefit, and is is, is a, a very important one. And I mean, I, I, but one more last question. I mean, how do you would you describe your uh, one of your music festivals specifically? Yeah, so um, every event that we produce under the Beautiful Perspective brand is um, inspired by the stories of, of people, individuals working through social issues. So what we're trying to ultimately do with our events is become um, incredible celebrations of life and diversity and a shared um, uh, objective of trying to make the world a better place for everybody. Um, and we do that by telling the stories of hundreds of different individuals with a wide range of backgrounds. Um, so if anything, our, our events are um, celebrations of, of life via a lot of the things that you see at music festivals. We have live bands performing. We have headliners. We have emerging musicians. We have chefs and artists and speakers. But what we also have is this underlying storyline that um, that what is happening around us matters, and we don't have to be fearful of that, but rather if we take the opportunities to celebrate um, it together we'll find more opportunities to connect with each other um and that and that's our, that's our mission is to make the world a better place through uh, inspired news content and live events life is beautiful i think we need a shaken and stirred tour tom let's do it let's do it i don't feel like we've even scratched the surface with you we had charge it's because we ran out we ran out of drinks yeah we did there's more Thank cheers you. shouldn't have shouldn't have i've been sharing a empty glass there you go yeah have some of mine <laughs> You're now shaking instead. Can we do this again? It's been a huge pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen.